as I said, I served in Congress for 200 years. <laughs> I left in the middle of my ninth term. I wasn't defeated, uh, but I left to to succeed Lee Hamilton as the as the president and CEO at the Wilson Center, which is a living memorial to Woodrow Wilson, who was our 28th president a hundred years ago, and who was a visionary in foreign policy. That's what it does. Um, there were some aspects of his domestic record that are very controversial, Wilson's. Uh, but his foreign policy record is is uh, widely and highly regarded, notwithstanding some mistakes. At any rate, I left to do that because the the partisanship of Congress was just intolerable. Uh, so I spent a decade at Wilson and while there thought about writing a book. I didn't want to write a personal memoir of, you know, I was born in this house and I went to this school and my yes. parents did this. But I did want to write a policy memoir of the things I lived through, mostly in my congressional years. And so this book is about the 30 years since the Cold War ended. Imagine it's 30 years and uh, many mistakes that we made, including that I made uh, over four presidencies. And uh, we're now in the fifth presidency. I don't work at, in Congress or at Wilson, but we're still making some mistakes, I think. And and the lack of a coherent strategy strategy for U.S. global leadership. We're paying a huge price for that. And by reviewing the book, by the way, it's fascinating. And you know, I had the honor to serve with you for a short time as a member from Nevada. But in your insights, and I could I could feel some of the meetings that you were attending. Uh, I wasn't a part of the committee, but I can imagine the information that you you still receive and did receive. Unlike the balance of Congress in the balance of the nation, how did you take all that information and then put it into public policy? And well, how did that work? Okay. So you're right that members of the intelligence committees, which are leadership committees, we don't get selected the same way other committee memberships are, are, are selected, although you were on Ways and Means, which is right. pretty impressive, got to say. I never made that, but I was on Armed Services, Homeland Security. Uh, uh, the Commerce Committee, uh, and a few, uh, the Space, uh, what was it called? The Science Committee, a yes. few other things like that. But but um, we are privy to, on the committee, a higher level of classified information. But then if you're chairman or ranking member, you are in the so-called gang of eight. That is the leaders, uh, uh, both uh, majority and minority in the Senate and House, plus the chair and ranking member of the intelligence committees. And that is the, I guess, the inner sanctum in terms of what Congress learns about intelligence. A point I make in the book is that we, we didn't learn everything in that committee. And uh, the briefings were highly secret. And I couldn't discuss things with anybody. That's and amazing. I realized uh, a few years into a program we had called Stellar Wind, we can discuss it or, or not, but a few years into that, that my repeated question in committee, uh, which was, uh, is this fully cons consistent with law, was being answered in a way wow. that that did not disclose. Let's just leave it there. I won't, yeah, I won't, so is it legal? Did not Can disclose we do it? That, that what we were doing did, was not in compliance with the Foreign Intelligence uh, Act, Foreign Intelligence, Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, FISA. It, it was in compliance with a legal opinion issued by the Justice Department, but not with the law that Congress had passed. So the technical answer I got, yes, 
had to do with that Justice Department opinion, not with the law. And I couldn't check anything. And when it was when President uh, uh, George Bush um, uh, 43 disclosed the whole operation, I was able to check and, and figure out what had happened. Once it became a public document. That's right. That's right. So I, I, I as a your rank and file member, uh, I was invited many times to your your committee room. And of course, I remember having to check, you know, everything at the door. We couldn't take a pencil, paper uh, and had a chance to be briefed. But what what was it like when the public may have a perspective, but you have more information and sharing that into take a deep breath because there is more to this than you may see. Did that come up periodically? Well, sort of. I mean, it was it's not a retail politics committee because you really can't talk to people about what you learn. You're right. But my district uh, in California make, made, and I think still makes many, most of our intelligence satellites. So it was directly in, 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 in the sweet spot of my district. And I could talk to some of them about some of this because they had clearances. Not everybody had clearances. I oh, that's was right. enormously careful. But, but uh, yes, um, but um, one of the things that happened on my watch was we, we realized that there's a lot more information in in in, in public sources, and we made a well, big effort. Out there. Yeah, yeah, effort to uh, include public media and other reporting uh, in the uh, in in the in the uh, uh, sort of in the in the in the space of the intelligence analysts. And there was resistance because they were used to high technology and spies on location oh, yeah. and all the glamorous stuff in the movies. But actually, public sources are a huge source of intelligence. So why am I saying this? Because the public, in in many ways, does have access, especially now. With so through, much information. Through, right? Yes, that's another issue through Twitter and through all kinds yeah. of, of of media uh, that my grandchildren manipulate better than I do. And now our intelligence community uses it too. But you're right. the The issue of too much too much information uh, is very hard. It's even hard in the intelligence uh, community in the, the so-called IC because uh, they can't possibly get through everything. Which is why there is a pretty substantial use of technology again, uh, algorithms and other ways to sort through gigantic masses of material. So. Throughout the book, and even in the in the title, uh, why our failure to confront hard problems makes us less safe. And you talk about communication, of course. There's turfs. Uh, there is, of course, the media, and then there's the politics, and then there's the spin. Uh, so your book, you're depressing me. Talk to, and you capitalized, and and again, not as a member of the committee, but I, I always sense there's a lot going on. In turf battles, but what's it? What are we doing over and over? Well, again? it's not just that. Yes, there are turf battles. Congress was organized for the for the nineteenth century, uh, not to insult anything no, that goes on in Nevada. Okay. Uh, but for example, there's a huge agriculture committee. Uh, I think the family farm is a very modest part of the U.S. economy. Not to disparage any farmers, oh, absolutely. Um, but there is no technology committee, which is actually how almost oh. everything we do gets done these days. Uh, and uh, Congress is, you know, still fighting over all this old turf. And even in the intelligence committees, uh, they don't they don't control the budget 
for the intelligence no, they enterprise. Don't. They don't. It's buried, maybe, it's, buried, it's buried in the Defense Department budget mm -hmm. in little pieces. And if, you know, you as a member from Nevada, you were uh, entitled to go to the intelligence rooms and find out about Program X in your state and get the backstory on what's happening and some funding. But there were never votes on the intelligence budget as a budget. And even in the uh, armed services committees, and there was some effort to have an armed services person uh, detailed to the intelligence committees to be helpful. That somehow has, I, I checked on it fairly recently, died. So uh, oversight was somewhat compromised. Yeah, there were all those turf battles. Uh, yes, there was that. Uh, but the other point that I make in the book is that Congress ducked a lot of the tough issues over four presidents, four Clinton, Bush, Obama, and 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 Trump, uh, and now we're in the fifth president. And and most of it happened after 9-11. We were surprised by 9-11. We shouldn't have been surprised. There were predictions that there would be a major attack on U.S. soil. Yeah, I was, you can't just set this, the stage. So you came in right as this was all happening. No, I came in before. Right before. I, I was, no, I was elected in 92. Yes. For, I served three terms. I left to run for governor of mm -hmm. California, don't ask, right. uh, which I lost. I then came back and got my seniority restored. So I came back right before 9-11. While I was out, uh, Dick Gebhardt, who was then the uh, minority leader of the Democrats, Pelosi had not yet been elected to leadership, uh, Gebhardt appointed me to something called the National Commission on Terrorism. And it was chaired by a Republican, whom I still like, who's gotten a bad rap because of his service in Iraq, named Jerry Bremer, L. Paul Bremer. And there were, I don't know how many of us, bipartisan, and we predicted, we were one of three commissions that predicted a major attack on U.S. soil, and nobody was listening. But early in 01, in January. Early, late in the 1990s. I oh, even then. And, and, yeah. Something and was wrong. And so something was wrong. And on 9-10-2001, this, no kidding, Jerry Bremer and I had lunch on Capitol Hill near here, uh, bemoaning the fact that no one was listening. And the next day, our world changed. So my point, a big point of the book is after we were attacked, we surged all of our resources uh, to counter terrorism. We forgot there was <laughs> there were a lot problems. of other challenges out yeah. there. Oops. Uh, and there sure were. And every we threw everything at this problem. And uh, we didn't have our authorities lined up. And the White House took a lot of leeway for a, a period of time. This is Dick Cheney in the lead. He was vice president. Um, I'm very impressed, by the way, with the courage his daughter has shown. Uh, but he was vice president. And he uh, and uh, some others, uh, including uh, some at the Pentagon, uh, started a number of practices which were not clear to review by Congress. So we ended up with Guantanamo Bay, uh, yes. which is a huge problem. Uh, it's part of Cuba, in case anybody missed it. We've rented it for years as a, a base for drug enforcement efforts uh, for the U.S. Long story about that. But anyway, all of a sudden, we were building a prison for people we detained, some not on the battlefield. And the the idea behind it, so I learned, was to have it be beyond the reach of U.S. law. We had a prison where we could... <laughs> Put people Across I won't, character, I won't characterize it yeah. we also had had so-called black sites in a number of countries that weren't disclosed 
And we had interrogation procedures that everyone now agrees amounted to torture. None of this stuff really went through Congress in, in an organized way. None of it. Uh, certainly not for years. And we ended up in violation of FISA because, as I mentioned earlier, yes. the authority used for this program called Stellar Wind was a memo written by the Office of Legal Counsel in the Justice Department. So uh, Congress, I, I'm not saying Congress didn't try, but Congress had an easy out, not not my table. This is bipartisan. Uh, the White House is doing this. And Congress eventually caught up to the problem. Our, our defense uh, strategies have been revised. We now think about, as we should, China. Yes. Uh, we obviously are thinking about Russia in the context of, of Ukraine. And uh, other things that bear on uh, our security, in addition to counterterrorism, it's still a worry, but it's not, it, and it shouldn't be the only focus of, of U.S. And it was not strategic to make the decision that it would be the only focus. And today, uh, or of course, I think election cycles never end, right? They're every day. The perpetual election. But there is a heightened awareness today going back to things that we were watching in the past and that's international what's happening for not only homeland security but international security uh what's happening of course in ukraine and you mentioned china and i know being very selective in in answering and even the question what should we be doing today uh how should we be handling the world as we know it or as it's unfolding as public policymakers what should be happening? well it's uh catching up with the reality would be good you know making courageous decisions on a bipartisan basis would be good um what is the reality now the reality to me is that the so-called liberal world order that we fashioned after world war ii which was impressive and served us well for um uh, 75 years is now unraveling and it's unraveling for a variety of reasons. One of which is it was a Northern hemisphere world order. It didn't include a huge part of the world uh, like Africa and Latin America. And uh, Africa is the fastest growing in terms of population um, uh, continent in the world. And we, they're always an afterthought. I mean, dumb decision. So didn't include Africa and Latin America, didn't include uh, the the developments of, in technology, the rise of tech company dominance around the world. It's huge. Uh, didn't include uh, things like cyber, didn't include, um, sadly, this new nuclear race that we're witnessing with Iran, North Korea and other countries. Uh, very sad. We have to rethink, you know, the nuclear regimes we've had. So what should we be doing? Seems to me we should be getting the smartest minds, which hopefully serve some of whom serve in Congress in both parties yes. and around the world, the thought leaders around the world and the leader leaders around the world to, to try to develop some kind of common approach. And, uh, you know, we don't want a new Cold War. Certainly, I don't want a new Cold War. If we had one, it would be with China more than it would be with Russia. But we don't want everyone signing up on one team or the other. Um, I, I can't see how that's productive. We certainly don't want a nuclear war. We also have to confront the climate challenge. I'm not sure what's going on in Nevada, but I'm from California, and the place is burning up. Yes. And there's no water. Colorado and, River issues. Yeah. And no well, yes, we we'll share and, with you. And, and we... Instead of saying, well, it's man-made causes, no, it's not, it's this, it's that, 
it's a problem. It's a problem. Let's so find let's a solution. put the problem on the table yes. and find some solutions. And no one has a, a corner on wisdom, I don't think. I mean, this is hard. And uh, and and also climate doesn't respect national boundaries, just like terrorism doesn't. And or so social solution, media. Or social media. So the solutions have to be bigger than uh, individual governments, uh, the nation state. They really have to be regional or worldwide. And uh, doesn't mean we, we can't have differences. I think we should confront China on the bad stuff it does. But I also think we should confront them and and try to cooperate where we can on the on those hard global issues. So we chat a little bit before and I know you're I know you're really busy and appreciate your time, but if if we could before we conclude, you know, every day we think partisanship can never get worse, you know, and, and we're watching the both of us are watching it and it it breaks my heart. Uh there's little communication I, as I mentioned earlier, I think part of it, members don't know each other anymore. There's not a relationship. It's all done with electronics. Uh, what can we do to bring parties together, uh, to bring individual people, civilized people together to make these these tough decisions? Well, interestingly, Woodrow Wilson never served in Congress. He was governor of New Jersey twice. He was before that the president of Princeton and, you know, an academic. And when he was elected president, what did he do? He set up an office in the Capitol, literally an office. And he went there on a regular basis and met everybody and talked to people and had it talked. I mean, talk, uh, not not on a Zoom uh, and which didn't exist. And he made relationships and he got a fairly serious domestic agenda, domestic agenda adopted very quickly set up the Federal Trade Commission, set up the income tax. You don't have to like the agenda, but he got it done as as a neophyte, uh, you know, rookie person in Washington by being there. I had kind of thought, and I don't know if this was ever suggested or not to him, that Joe Biden, uh, a veteran of four decades, four, a, four a, oh years in the Senate and, with a capable senior staff, which he still worked for him in very senior positions, would have done something like that. And I think if he had done that, uh, certainly those before him didn't do it. Trump didn't know Congress at all, uh, to be fair. I'm not trying to be no, partisan. Obama was you know, there very briefly, uh, and uh, Bush didn't either. So uh, when you think about that, he had the best chance, he, Biden, to kind of fix this and help people work together. And there have been some bipartisan groups. A very close friend of mine is Susan Collins, and I salute her for endlessly. And a big part of your book, uh, it says great things. About well, the she book. blurbed the book. Yes, I mean, she, we we bonded over uh, <laughs> intelligence reform uh, a long time ago. But but the point is that there are these bipartisan groups: the Gang of Five, the Gang of yes. Ten. Uh, but they, and yeah, ten. all that, and I that's good, but. The Congress is still uh, and increasingly uh, a, a, a toxic workplace. And I'll just say one more thing about that, because I know we have to end this. But my theory is that the business model of Congress is broken. And what happens, and this is a rant about both parties, is both parties blame the other side for yes. not solving problems. Yes. Because if you work with the other side, you are bipartisan. And if you are bipartisan, you get primaried. That's a new verb. Uh, I, I didn't know that verb when I was first elected, which means that the more extreme people in 
either party run against you in a primary. And because of the way we draw district lines, which is still highly partisan, oh, yeah. California is fortunately changing that, at least mm -hmm. for California. Uh, but the way we draw district lines, the primary is your election. You win the primary, you win. So what do people do? They move to their quarters and they, and, right. and they don't know each other, your point, because it's a fly-in Congress, come Tuesday, leave Thursday, or in, in many cases now, zoom in. And I think you can vote remotely now. That's a new reform, which I'm not sure is, is good. Uh, but so if you don't know somebody, it's easy to demonize that person. Really? And sure. And, you know, way back in the day when I was counsel to a Senate subcommittee, uh, senators lived in D.C. and they their kids were on the same Little League teams and some of them shared apartments. Just imagine uh, with each other on a bipartisan basis. Don't tell anybody. And I see I, I was a targeted member because of fairly evenly split district. And I think those of my colleagues on both sides of the aisle that are in fairly evenly split districts are always the target. Yeah. Uh, and what happens is that then the extremes remain. And, and the, our, center the, the center disappears. And it just whittles and whittles and being whittled away. I, I was in the so. center, too. And I had very tough races. I didn't get to a majority until Blue my, my right. third term. Yes, Blue Dog. You bet. And I still think, uh, you know, budget you know, fiscal responsibility matters. I'm on a bipartisan commission that that uh, for committee for a responsible federal budget, which is totally bipartisan. And I still think that matters. Um, but I also think uh, that figuring out some solutions uh, to hard problems, COVID has been a hugely hard problem, which might involve spending money as long as you pay for it somehow right. are, are good things to do. And spending money is not automatically bad. And uh, et cetera. But we demonize all this stuff and we talk in shorthand. And the goal is to make the other guy look bad. And people vote against uh, uh, people in, in elections, not for people anymore. And that's tragic. I mean, we're going to kiss off something that's hugely valuable, which is the longest democracy on the planet with a written constitution. Uh, you know, hello, this is not OK with me. Well, how about we work on some of these things together? Okay. Look forward to spending more time with you, Congresswoman Jane Harmon. Uh, an honor. Uh, you are a, a icon in, in the nation, if not the world. Well, I'm your old. Expertise. That. I encourage everyone to pick up your book. And by the way, it's available on Amazon and at your favorite bookstore near you. Uh, I, I appreciate your time and thank you for signing it. Uh, again, welcome everyone to Politics Aside, where we talk to people that are making a difference and trying to find solutions to problems. So with that, thank you for joining us. Congresswoman, it's a, really a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you, John. Thank you.